Welcome to The Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan and as always, I'm here with Mark Crosweller. By way of introduction for those of you that don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security and emergency management for over 35 years. His experiences, both personal, professional, as well as his academic research, have taken him into the world of ethics, often intersecting with the worlds of philosophy and metaphysics. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Well, Mark, it's great to be chatting with you again today. We're having a chat today about your latest blog post, which was focusing on the ugliness of moral hypocrisy. So it would be great if we could maybe start with just a bit of an overview. What are ethics? What are the virtues of ethics? And how do they relate to our sense of self and identity in our everyday lives? So ethics establishes the principles that we use to mediate our interactions. So how we learn to live together. Um, how, how we establish expectations about how to behave. Um, it sort of provides us with guidance on how to answer big questions in life, you know, like, you know, what should I do? How should I act? How should I live? Um, so it, it, it's really a space that helps us to get on with each other, essentially, and treat each other well. Um, I say a lot in my lectures that it pretty much doesn't matter what your background is or your culture or your politics or your philosophy, you know, I'm, you know, probably overgeneralizing and homogenizing everything, but, um, you know, most humans want to be happy, they want to be well, and they want to flourish. So they want to be the best they can be. And, and they, they would like opportunities to be able to do that. Now, that's a grossly oversimplistic um, aspiration of humanity, but it's, it also has a truth to it as well. So ethics helps us to achieve that. So it helps us to find happiness. It helps us to be well mentally and physically, uh, and it helps us to flourish, to, to really be who we want to be because it navigates the great space of harmfulness. And if we act unethically or immorally, then essentially we're letting harm into, into the relationship or harm between two people or harm between two communities or two societies. So that's why ethics is so important. I mean, it can move us towards the good, it can move us towards the just, uh, and it can move us towards non-harmfulness. <clears throat> and I think the greatest work of ethics is getting rid of the harmfulness, getting suffering out of the system or, or minimising suffering or, or managing it or contesting it or, or making sure it doesn't rise or if it does rise that it's dealt with in a, in a, in a way that returns us back to a sense of health. So that's why I think ethics is really important. It's in everybody's discourse, Jordan. I sit in meetings and because uh, I've sort of been trained in how to do this through my research, but you can hear really subtly, you know, virtues sitting in the background of people's conversation all the time and people are trying to move towards the good or, or the fair or the right or the just. You know, you can see that they're naturally motivated to do that. Sometimes that can be in destructive ways, of course, or unhelpful ways, so the execution of their intention is unskillful. And that's probably because their intention is mixed up with some other things that are going on inside their mind, which is allowing those harms to creep into their discourse. But, but at the end of the day, Jordan, ethics, you know, how do we treat each other well? How do we share in finding a pathway to happiness? And how do we 
be the best we could be as humans. And Mark, what do you mean when you refer to the virtues of ethics? Aristotle used the word virtue in his philosophical discourse. Aristotle said that uh, ethics were virtues and virtues were excellences. So we, we became virtuous through lived experience and through the wisdom of our lived experience. So he called it phronesis or practical wisdom. So in other words, life taught us something. Life would teach us about what was good, what led us towards flourishing, what led us towards happiness was to be virtuous. And it could be virtuous in the execution of your job. So you excelled in how you did your job. So you could be a nurse, for example. So you're contributing towards the well-being of others and you do that with excellence then you would develop virtue about that. So you could be a, a, a nurse with great virtue because you, your ability to care for other people was was highly refined and skillful and had a wisdom to it. He also said that you couldn't find that wisdom in, on your own, that you had to also find it through education as well. So, so it's, I think it's really important to understand, a little bit off track, but it's important to make this point that our lived experience gives us a practical wisdom, so how to apply wisdom in context. So there's a set of circumstances that we find ourselves within and practical wisdom will help us to navigate those circumstances ethically. But we draw the ethos from theoretical wisdom. So we draw it from the great sages, if you like. So we draw it from the Buddha or from Christ or Muhammad or the great philosophers, Kierkegaard, Schopenhauer, uh, Nietzsche, Kant, for example, wherever we draw moral sentiment, Adam Smith, I could go on, but all those who talked about morality, talked about ethics, we draw from them as well. So now, interestingly, Jordan, we don't all read this stuff, uh, but we pick it up from others. So those philosophers have been profoundly influential over the course of human history in shaping the way we think, speak and act. And we pick that up, you know, socially and culturally and we bring it into our own discourse so we may never have read Immanuel Kant or Immanuel Kant depending upon how you want to pronounce his surname but we would have aspects of his philosophy in our discourse so virtue is an excellence and then there's what's called substantive virtues which are things like compassion and kindness and courage patience and those sort of things aspects of the human mind which are which naturally occur of course they, they exist within the human mind in their own right they're substantive virtues, and the reason I say they're substantive is principally because they're shared by all cultures, you know, all nations, all peoples. So there are some virtues that are excellences that are not shared across culture, um, and none specifically come to mind right now. But you can imagine, in terms of in terms of tradecraft or certain sort of cultural practices, could be virtuous for one culture and not virtuous for another. You know, we, we may not see the virtue in a certain practice that a certain culture would would see, um, you know, as virtuous. If we talk about substantive virtues, then yes, kindness, compassion, patience, courage, care, we all understand those things. And that's really where I focus my efforts on in helping leaders and people just be more confident and competent about the use of those as a pathway towards wellness, happiness and flourishing. And we just know from lived experience that when we show kindness or we receive kindness, we feel better, we feel happier and we feel more human. And you can say the same about courage or the same about compassion or the same about patience. So it's a specific school of thought, Jordan, um, in ethical discourse, in normative ethical theory. It's called the virtues. And I think they're really important because they really speak to the character of a person. So they're very much at the individual level. If we talk about ethics in the context of 
deontology, uh, which is really uh, Kantian or Kantian. Then we're talking about duties, obligations, rules. Uh, if we talk about utilitarianism, it's really about ethics for the greatest good, for the greatest number. And what tends to happen in deontology and utilitarianism is that we we really discount the characterization of the ethic. So we don't really focus on the person. We focus on the logic and the reason of the argument and then, and then how many people it benefits. My argument is that we've forgotten about character and, and character is becoming increasingly flawed, not because people want to be that way, but because we've stopped talking about the virtues. And, and one of the difficulties with the virtues is, of course, we've weaponized them. So when people, and we'll talk, we've talked about this in previous blogs about uh, virtue signaling, and we need to talk about them in future blogs about how to protect ourselves from it. But in, in Australia, you know, politics is very much at the moment about the character of the leaders and about the virtuous nature or otherwise of those leaders. Uh, and it's central to the debates. And it's certainly central to the debates that I experience when I teach students on ethics uh, and work with organisations uh, at a leadership level about why things are working. It comes back to the character of the leadership and the, th- the fact that things are missing. So care, kindness, compassion, courage, patience are missing in culture and missing in the leadership repertoire. And that's why I think they're really important. So, Mark, how does moral hypocrisy turn up in our lives? Basically through our egos, I think, Jordan, we, we, get, um, we can very quickly become morally righteous or morally hypocritical because we bite down on something that we perceive to be right or wrong, just or unjust, fair or unfair, with very little evidence. So we, we launch too quickly to uh, judgment. We launch too quickly to our position. We often don't take the time to understand it from the other side. We don't take the time to understand our contribution to the problem. We just latch onto or grasp at being right and in the process making others wrong. And Buddhists have a saying that you can be right or you can be happy. You can't be both. And what they mean by that is when, when we take a righteous viewpoint and think that we are absolutely right and somebody is absolutely wrong, we rob ourselves of any chance of happiness. So um, it, it, can, it plays out in the human mind a lot, more than people realise, I think. When we're, when we're aggrieved by something that we perceived has happened to us, we can often get quite righteous about it because we feel hurt or we feel, we feel a level of suffering or a level of pain. And it's not to discount how we feel about those things, but often what happens to us is not happening specifically aimed at us. It's just We just happen to be caught up in a set of circumstances which we find unpleasurable. And it's not often that we're actually the direct target of harmfulness. It's, we're usually, as a conse- we get caught up in it as a consequence of something else that's going on. And you see it in organisations, people get quite righteous about an organisational decision or uh, an organisational set of practices or behaviours, and, and they may well be unhelpful. They may well be quite harmful and inappropriate, but there are ways and means of dealing with that without getting morally righteous about it and taking the high moral ground at the expense of everybody else and particularly the expense of relationships, which is really where we need to navigate back to the centre. And if there is a problem of morality or a problem of you know, poor ethics or harmfulness, then we need a dialogue or a discourse in order to resolve that. So uh, if we become morally righteous, we close off that opportunity because we just become absolute. And there's no happiness there, Jordan. You know, I think... Um, you know, you talk to people about when they're righteous, is there any sense of happiness in their mind? And there's not. There's, there's, there's indignation and condemnation and vitriol and 
and it's just not it's just not pleasant and and that those emotions are being experienced not by the person that you're targeting or that we're targeting but by by us so we have to experience that the the, the painful painfulness of those emotions <clears throat> excuse me because they're coming from our mind and mark when we focus on ethics and morality how do we then keep out of the trap of judging others i, I think that we need to help help each other understand that we all suffer similar aspects of the human mind which causes the, causes grief so because somebody is in pain and suffering internally they will act inappropriately it's good to try and understand that that's actually what's happening so so we can see our minds so we we know what's happening inside our head and we go to a, a you know great lengths to justify that in our mind so you know we'll become an inner lawyer so we find evidence to support our proposition or support our point of view and then we argue our case on the basis of the evidence that we find, which is, you know, someone would argue is a cognitive bias, and, and certainly I think it is. But we judge others on their behaviour because we can't see their minds. So we don't know what's going on inside their head. I often say to people, you can bet your bottom dollar that what's going on inside their head is pretty much what's going on inside your head. And all those things that you're using to justify why you're taking the high moral ground on something is probably the same reasons that other person is uh, doing the same thing. So so having empathy for the other person, showing compassion towards their suffering or their capacity to suffer or their susceptibility to suffering is really important and trying to understand their perspective. Now, you may not agree with it or we may not agree with it, but it softens the blow or it softens the tension. And we can still disagree, but we give up being absolutely right and we give up making them absolutely wrong because we realise that there's some room for improvement for everybody. Now, sometimes that's 1%, 99%, and sometimes that's 50-50, and sometimes it's 30-70. You know, it varies depending upon the issue, but it's rarely zero to 100%. It rarely is at zero that we're not at fault, and 100% is the fault of somebody else. Now, there are exceptions in life, and we can do as exceptions by exception, but most of the time, it's just not a zero, 100% game. So, in a lawyer, not helpful. In a judge, much more helpful. And what I mean by that is weigh it up from both sides. You know, a good judge will take the evidence from both sides, limit the limit as far as possible the amount of bias that would otherwise colour the judgment, and then make a decision. And, you know, I talked about non-judgment in the blog, and what I mean by that is it's not that we don't need to judge. We do, but we judge too quickly. So we move, we move too quickly to judging what we think is right or wrong without really analysing it from both perspectives because we perceive we don't have time and we have more time than we realise. Most, most issues just simply do not need, need to be resolved immediately and patience and time can go a long way to resolution and that's a conscious choice, so it's, it's, it's in action. It's not, a, it's not an abrogation. It's not a denial. It's a conscious choice to be patient. It's a conscious, conscious choice to not judge in order to deem a greater truth or to try and find the greater truth of the issue, which takes time and patience and analysis. And then our judgment becomes more refined. Our judgment becomes fairer, becomes closer to the truth of the issue. Uh, and inevitably, it means that we have a more peaceful mind and we're more likely to get resolution with the other person that we're seeking to uh, resolve our differences with. So... So non-judgment is not to say everything's fine and it's an amoral uh, world and you can do what you like and there's no recourse or there's no morality. I'm not saying that for one second. 
what I am saying is that we have judgment for a good reason, but we should nurture it by first of all practicing non-judgment to let truth rise up, to let patience do its work, to let the mind settle and, and find the greater truth of the issue before we cast our judgments. And that's the value of non-judgment. It, it opens up that space, it settles things down, uh, makes us a little bit happier and it gives us a, a, a greater sense of wisdom about what it is we're trying to deal with. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying the podcast, you might like to post a review on Apple Podcasts and help others to discover and enjoy the podcast as well. See you next time.